Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you all here today. Our call to worship this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter, and it is an extended reading. We'll be reading the first 35 verses together. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple, his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings. He replied to them, Do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be a great distress. The kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then, see, here is the Messiah, or over here, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I've told you in advance. So if they tell you, see, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. See, he's in the storerooms, Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will gather. 
Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us bow our heads together for prayer. Our Father, we thank you that in this hour we can gather together as this local body of Christ to worship in spirit and in truth, to honor you by exalting your Son, the Lord Jesus, and to enjoy the encouragement and the strengthening that comes from enjoying the fellowship of your Spirit. We thank you that you've given your spirit to your people, those who have placed their confident trust in the Savior that you've provided, Jesus Christ. Please bless our time together here today. In the name of Christ our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Okay, kids, we've got another learning Sunday today. Another teaching and learning Sunday. And there's a lot here. And if everything goes well, we're going to make it all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to finish that out this week. And there are three main points that we're going to be talking about today. They're listed for you in the bulletin in the title of the sermon. This is a part three sermon. And the three points we're going to consider are the present distress, who don't we please, and only in the Lord three phrases that we'll be considering today and we'll we'll count them as our three points and we have a lot so we're just going to jump right in and I hope you can hang in there with me as we make our way through this earlier in the chapter earlier in chapter 7 Paul was giving marital instructions to those who are married and then he explained his principle of remaining with God in whatever season or station of life you find yourself in in other words faith in God trusting God it fits every circumstance of life. Now Paul turns his attention to the unmarried, both the never married and the widowed. What is his advice for them? He acknowledges that he does not have a chapter and verse from the Lord's teaching that he can refer them to. He can't say, open your Bibles to Matthew's gospel chapter. He can't do that because he doesn't have anything specifically on this. But he believes that he, as a faithful servant of the Lord, has the Spirit of God to guide him in giving faithful advice to God's people. And that should cause us to lift up our ears and listen closely. This advice that he gives, it conveniently spills out right out of the principle that he has just taught, the principle about remaining with God in whatever circumstance in life that you find yourself in. But it also spills right into his consideration for their present circumstances. And that's what we're going to look at first. Let's have a look at chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. Paul says, 
Now about virgins, and when Paul speaks about virgins, he's talking about the unmarried who are betrothed, or in our day we would say engaged to one another. He says, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. He's talking to unmarried people who are nevertheless engaged or betrothed to one another. In first century culture, young men and women would be promised or betrothed to one another. This arrangement was a lot more binding than our familiar engagements that we know today. Even though the marriage was not yet realized, the only way to undo a betrothal was through divorce. A couple might be promised to each other when they were very, very young, even before either was old enough to even begin to experience the stirrings of romantic love, much less the independence and financial wherewithal to build a life together. You can see a betrothed couple might be betrothed for many years before they were in a position to actually have the wedding and start the marriage. But even so, the only way to undo such an arrangement was through a divorce. The young man, during the time of his betrothal, he would seek to establish himself so that he would be in a position to consummate the betrothal with a wedding. We can tell from Paul's answer to their question that there is a pretty big concern that these betrothed couples have when it comes to getting married. What's the concern? Paul refers to it as the present distress. And he thinks it is a serious enough matter for young men to strongly think about not consummating their betrothal with a marriage. The present distress, what's he talking about? That's the first thing we want to consider here today. Now, we can't be sure, but here's a pretty strong clue. In the city of Corinth, there was a governmental position, an official position that we now know about. Archaeologists have found inscriptions from this very time period in which Paul was writing that show that there was a certain man who held this government position on three separate occasions. That may seem unremarkable at first, but it becomes significant when we understand that this government position was for the oversight of grain rationing. It was a position that was only filled during a time of famine, food shortage. Many years, that position sat vacant, unfilled, because there simply was no need. But here, in the very time that Paul was writing, which was right around 56, probably the spring of 56, at this very time, we have evidence that this position was occupied on at least three separate occasions during that decade. Whatever the present distress involved, it's almost certain that food shortages played a role in the trouble that the people were experiencing. Incidentally, a prophet of the Lord had predicted this time of famine. We read about it in Acts chapter 11, 
Acts 11, 27 through 28, the word of God says, In those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Caesar Claudius, the Roman emperor. So, the present distress that Paul mentioned, it involved a famine. But maybe there was more to it. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 and 2 might provide us with another clue. Acts 18, 1 through 2. After this, Paul left Athens. He was on one of his missionary journeys. And he went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Emperor Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. History tells us that tensions between Jews and Gentiles in the metropolitan city of Alexandria, Egypt, had reached a boiling point several years earlier. There had been open conflicts in the streets. These tensions rippled throughout the Roman Empire until they triggered action on the part of the Roman Emperor Claudius. Perhaps Claudius feared that the Jews were a fifth column, in other words, a group of people who could undermine a larger group from within. Whatever his reasons, Claudius forbid Jews from assembling together in Rome in A.D. 41. Eight years later, in 49, he evicted them altogether from the capital city. That's when Paul met Aquila and Priscilla in the city of Corinth. They had been evicted from Italy, from the capital city of Rome, simply because they were Jews, and they had to move. Paul meets them in Corinth. Now, they weren't the only Jews who were affected by this edict of the Caesar Claudius. All of the Jews living in Italy and Rome had to leave. It's difficult to imagine that this did not have far-reaching impact for Jews living in the large Roman cities throughout the empire. But did this have any impact on the Christian community? Without a doubt, it would have. Christians were usually regarded by their unbelieving neighbors and by the local governments as just a Jewish sect, a spin-off group. Even though Christians experienced persecution by zealous Jews, there was often no distinction made between Jews and Christians in the eyes of city officials and regional governors. Followers of Christ most likely faced additional hardships at this time because the world around them associated them with the Jews who had fallen out of favor in the Roman world. So, let's recap. We have a time of famine that had been predicted by prophets of the Lord during a time when Christians were experiencing increased hostility and persecution, not only from Jewish antagonists, but now from unbelieving Gentiles as well. Does this sound like something that could qualify as a present distress in Paul's letter? I think it's pretty likely. And this probably explains why some young betrothed couples were questioning whether or not they should get married you know as well as I do perhaps that oftentimes marriage is hard enough even when times are good. What would it be like in distressing times like these when being faithful to Christ will almost certainly result in hardships and persecutions, when food is scarce, when economic opportunities are being closed off to you? 
How difficult will it be when one has to not only think of their self, but also think of a young family to protect and provide for? You will have trouble, Paul says, and I would spare you if at all possible. Let's return to the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 38. Paul says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the, the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting improperly towards the virgin he is engaged to, if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He's not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiancée, will do well. So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. This is the logic of Paul's advice for these Corinthian Christians. Given their difficult circumstances, times were tough. And it was going to be difficult enough faithfully following the Lord without compounding the stresses of trying to start a family which would need much care and concern. The single person would be able to navigate these troubled waters with less heartache and more focused devotion to serving the Lord in the midst of a time of severe crisis. Are you bound to a wife, Paul says? Don't try to be released from your betrothal. Don't try to get out of it. But are you released from your betrothal? Don't go looking to enter into a betrothal arrangement. Don't get engaged. Remember the principle I've taught you. Remain with the Lord in whatever your circumstance and given the present distress, Think long and hard about the hardships that will inevitably accompany getting married and starting a family in these very troubled times. Nevertheless, there are other things which must be considered, Paul says. Has the time of love blossomed in your hearts? Does it seem that you would be acting inappropriately if you delayed the marriage? What about your own natural desires? Will you be burning with longing if you were to not proceed with the union? All of these things must be considered. And if you weigh all of these things out and decide that you really must get married, don't worry about it. You're not doing anything wrong. Get married. But if your situation is such that you are in full control of your natural passions, and if you are not in a situation where your family or, and your fiancé's family are pressuring you to move forward, and you decide to remain engaged instead of marrying, then you're going to be in a better position to devote yourselves to the Lord during the increasingly difficult days ahead. Speaking about the difficult days ahead for these Christians... It's my personal understanding that there's one more layer to it. We talked about famines. We talked about increasing persecution from Jews and Gentiles alike. But it's my understanding 
that there's a third layer here, a third layer to the distress that Paul is talking about. And this is where I unpack my personal understanding of what the Lord and his apostles referred to as the last days. And they said that it was very near in their time. This is my understanding, and it's by no means the only understanding of the last days. I don't have a corner on the market, and there are many people who understand these things differently than I do. I want you to understand that. This is something that brothers and sisters in Christ can agree to disagree on, and there's no worries and no troubles about that. But I do want to share with you how I understand these scriptures. Paul makes a reference to the last days in verses 29 through 31. Let's look at that together. 29 through 31. He says, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. This is a very confusing passage, I think. Let's see if we can figure it out. Paul said that the time was limited. Literally, that phrase means the time has been shortened. This shortening was going to necessitate that Christians alive at this time live out their lives in a very different way than the normal course of life because they were going to be living in very different times. They would need to live in a state of semi-detachment from this world because the whole order of things was about to roll over. Everything was about to change. In other words... It wasn't going to be a time for building forever homes, for planting flower gardens, for painting white picket fences. Sorrows were going to be so intense that you were going to have to learn how to mourn without weeping. Happiness would be so fleeting that one would have to learn how to rejoice without smiling. And those who bought and sold and used this world would have to learn to do so without putting down any deep roots or obsessing over their financial portfolios because everything was about to change. How so? As I mentioned earlier, Paul was writing to these Corinthian believers in the year 56. Societal pressures were increasing. Persecution was mounting. That taken with the alarming increase in famines, earthquakes, and volcanic activity, along with rumors of war, would have been an alarming sign to these Christians that the days of great trouble spoken of by the Lord, which we read about earlier in Matthew 24, were drawing near. Hear the Lord's words from Mark 13, 28 through 30. Jesus said, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things take place. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through chapter 9, verse 1. I'll repeat that reference for those of you who jot it down. Mark chapter 8, 34, 
through chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus called the crowd along with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not die until they see the kingdom of God come in power. It seems almost certain to me that the followers of Christ could surely see the signs of the times and they discerned that the days of great trouble were very near. How near? We don't know our history about this time period as well as we ought to as Christians. I'll share a few key points with you. The year was 56 when Paul was writing. Troubles were increasing along with famine, earthquake, and rumors of war. Within eight years, the next Roman emperor, Nero, would instigate a worldwide lethal persecution upon the Christians in the year AD 64. Followers of Christ would endure this violence at the hands of both Jews and Gentiles alike for a span of two to three years. Only those who were unwavering in their faith would follow the Lord and their commitment to him to the point of death. Many who were not truly committed to him in their hearts would fall away or even would betray the ones that they had once called brother and sister. This fiery persecution would rage on against the Christians until something would happen to draw the emperor's attention away from the onslaught. What was that thing that happened? In the year 66, the province of Judea, Israel, revolted against Rome and triggered the unbelievably bloody Jewish war that lasted from 66 to 70. Within days of the beginning of this conflict, an amazing thing happened. The residents of Judea reported seeing an alarming sign in the skies. They saw an army of soldiers in the clouds and riders on horseback galloping back and forth in the heavens. Some of these Judeans took this sign to be an omen of God's favor. God was with them in their conflict against Rome. But others feared impending doom. And as Jerusalem descended into internal conflict between warring factions who vied for supremacy, the temple was desecrated. The daily sacrifices for the nations were discontinued. And then on the day of Pentecost in 66, an incredibly awesome thing was reported by the priests. The heavy doors of the temple, so large and so heavy that it was required 20 men to unbolt the doors and push them to swing them open. On the day of Pentecost, these doors unbolted and swung open on their own. Standing by, the priests were astonished. And that's when they reported hearing something. They heard what sounded to them like a sound of many voices, 
It sounded like rushing water to them. And the voices said, let us leave from here. Following these events, the Roman armies would lay waste to the entire land of Palestine, methodically funneling all of the people toward the city of Jerusalem. And then they laid siege to the city, just as Jesus had predicted. Inside the city, warring factions killed each other. Finally, the Romans breached the city walls. The land and the lakes both flowed with blood as more than one million were slaughtered in the cauldron of war. There had never been a war like it before. And if we take Jesus at his words, never another thing like it since. The city of Jerusalem was razed. Not one stone was left upon another. When the destruction was finished, the Lord's prophecy concerning the rebellious city was fulfilled. And it was impossible to tell that there had even once been a great city. Whatever one may make of these historical accounts that have come to us through the Jewish historian Josephus, this much is certain. History does not provide us with any other reference to any followers of Jesus Christ for more than 20 years following these events. And when Paul stated that the time had been shortened, I think he was speaking prophetically, signaling that the time of the end of the Old Covenant age was pretty much right on their doorstep and a time of extreme difficulty and suffering for followers of Christ was about to begin. Now, can we understand why the apostle would say that those who had mates and children would suffer heartache upon heartache in the trouble that was about to come? Can we understand why he would say, I just want to spare you. And that's what the present distress was about. But we've got two more quick points to follow. I promise that was the big one. The second one's a lot shorter. And it's a question, who don't we please? The second point we want to look at today is found in some verses we've already read. It's a small thing to notice, and it won't take much of our time, but it's quite important for us to see. The question we now ask is this, who don't we please? Let's look once again at 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, and I want you to look for the answer to this question, who don't we please? Paul says, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. And now, having reread those verses, let me ask you once again, who don't we please? Whether married or unmarried, who don't we please? You have to read between the lines. Ourselves. Ourselves. Notice the assumptions that Paul makes in his reasoning. The single man or woman is concerned with what? Pleasing the Lord solely. That's the focus of his or her life. How can I please the Lord in what I do today, this week, this month, this year? But the married man or woman must consider another person in addition to the Lord. How can I please my mate? 
The married person must be concerned with the affairs of this world because he or she has someone else to care for and please. Notice, Paul doesn't say this is a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with it. He merely assumes that it is the right thing to be concerned with pleasing your mate if you're married. The only negative that he can think of is this. Given the trying circumstances of their present distress, seeking to please a mate will necessarily keep one from an unfettered, single-minded devotion to pleasing the Lord, and that's going to be tough. This state of divided devotion would be a hindrance for any Christian trying to navigate those troubled times. But back to the point we were making. I think the big takeaway for us here today who aren't living in those same kind of times that they were living in, the big takeaway is this. Notice that there is one person who is not to be a priority focus for any one of us, whether we're married or unmarried. Ourself. Be concerned about pleasing the Lord. If you're married, be concerned about pleasing your mate too. What about seeking my own personal happiness? Crickets. This category doesn't even make a blip on Paul's radar screen. It's like he can't even imagine anyone who follows Christ thinking this way. I bet if you or I were to interrupt Paul to ask about pursuing our own interests, he would probably look at us like we had lobsters crawling out of our ears. It just, it wouldn't even compute. As a matter of fact, come to think of it, Paul did write something about it, though. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Paul said, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. The single person is devoted to pleasing the Lord. The married person is devoted to pleasing the Lord and their mate. No person should be devoted to seeking their own personal fulfillment. I'll admit, this grates hard against our Western minds. We instinctively question it. I'm no different than you might be in this regard. I'm only telling you what the apostles have told us. And I wrestle with it just like you might. Just know that seeking our own interests is not an option that has been left open to us as a legitimate path in following the Lord Jesus. And we all have to think about this very hard. And it brings us to our final point today. Number three, only in the Lord. Paul wraps up his instructions by speaking to those who are widowed. What should a woman bereft of her husband do? Now, Roman law was very clear. Roman law said that a widow under the age of 60 was to remarry within 18 months of her husband's passing. Law. There were compelling social and economic reasons for this law. But what about the Christian widow? Was she free to do this? It obviously was one of the questions that they asked Paul because he answered it. Was she free to remarry? And Paul's answer? Absolutely with one condition, only in the Lord. That is, she was to only marry another believer. And it's in this instruction that we find something that we must all understand. 
The follower of Jesus, if seeking a mate, is commanded to not go outside the family of God. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. If you're considering marriage, you must only consider within the family of God, a Christian mate. A Christian must marry, Paul says, only in the Lord. But wait a minute, preacher. Didn't Paul say earlier in the chapter that if a believer was married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever was willing to stay in the marriage, then the believer should not divorce their spouse? Yeah, he did say that. And that applies to two individuals who have married before one of them later came to faith in Christ. In that situation, the marriage is to be preserved as long as the unbelieving spouse is content to remain. But for the man or woman who is already a follower of Jesus, there is a clear command to only marry another who is also in the Lord. Only in the Lord. But Paul has another thought that he wants to add. In my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God, Paul says. For Paul, there is one thing that keeps asserting itself and rising up above and beyond every circumstance and situation of life. What is it? Knowing Christ Jesus the Lord and pursuing wholehearted devotion to him in all ways and in all things. Listen to his thoughts about this, taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. Paul says, everything that was a gain to me in life, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. Does that bother me? No, I consider them as garbage so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal in life is to know him and to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship that comes from suffering for him, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. He got me. He got me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what's ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Are you picking up the attitude of Paul? He said, something grabbed a hold of me. A person got me. Christ Jesus got me. He grabbed a hold of me. And ever since he got me, ever since that day, I've been grabbing hold of what he wants. And I've been living my life trying to pursue pleasing the Lord in all things because there's only one thing that matters to me in life and that is I want to know him. I mean, I already know him, but I want to know him. I want to know him deeply. 
I want to know him as well as any human made in the image of God can possibly know him. And I want to know his resurrection. I want to experience that. That's all that matters to me. Anything else, I can let it go because it doesn't really matter. There's one thing that matters, and that's knowing the Lord. I can't help but think as I consider these words of Paul's. If we had been on that road to Damascus and we had seen the risen Lord and heard his voice just as Paul had, I'm pretty sure our entire perspective on things regarding this life and the life to come would be radically changed in every way, just like his was. I don't think we'd be grasping on to things that matter to us I think we would spend all of our time trying to grasp onto the things that we see as mattering to Christ. We'd be grasping onto him. Nothing else would matter when compared to knowing Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we've had to do some real digging here today as we've learned about the, the circumstances that those Christian brothers and sisters of ours so long ago we're experiencing a time of great distress and trouble and your faithfulness in the midst of it. Father, we, uh, we consider a very difficult thing. Who don't we please? Each one of us comes into this life with a default setting to seek our own interests, to seek to have our own needs fulfilled, gratified, satisfied, and it seems like a foreign concept, this idea that we live to please you, that we live to please others, but there's one person that we don't even think about, ourself. Nevertheless, it's the life that you call your people, your, your sons and daughters through faith in Christ, you call them into this way of living. Help us, because we would lie if we said that we didn't struggle with this teach us. Please be patient with us and bring us along as we learn the way of Jesus in not seeking our own interests, but in seeking yours and seeking the good of others. Father, help us to remember this principle of only in the Lord. Paul applied it to seeking marriage that a Christian brother or sister is to only marry within the household of faith. But we can take this principle and we can apply it. Oh, we can apply it to every area of life. Everything we say, everything we do should be governed by this overarching principle of only in the Lord, only in the Lord, only in the Lord. It was the thing that drove Paul in his service to you and his service to others in the body of Christ reaching the lost with the good news. It was always only in the Lord. Help us to learn this principle and to live by it. Forgive us when we fail. We thank you that you've provided so great a salvation for us through the Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Today, this week and forever. Amen.
Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.